Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And then we move to Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. If there's one theme in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it is this. Live your life wholeheartedly oriented towards God and his deep goodness. Live your life wholeheartedly oriented towards God and his deep goodness. And our reading you've just heard, and it'd be good to keep it open, in fact, if you've got it there in front of you, from Matthew 7, 1 to 12, continues this theme. As we hear Jesus, we've again been confronted with his imaginative and forceful language that he uses right throughout this sermon. He speaks in words that we need to take seriously, very seriously indeed, but not legally. I don't mean not literally. In fact, we need to take his words literally for them to have the shock effect he wants them to have on us, but not legally. You'll see what I mean as we open the, open the passage together. And this section is not as tightly focused as previous ones, and I think it's in three, possibly four bits. In almost the entire theme is... Jesus taking on a deeply ingrained habit we all have, 
at which we have so much in stake about the way we think about ourselves and others. Let's start with verse 1. Jesus said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is warning us about judging. What's that? Well, the Greek word here, like the English word judge itself, has a wide range of possible applications from condemning at one end to discerning at the other. Simply put, to judge in this context is to come to a moral assessment of others and of situations. To judge means to make a moral assessment in some way. Jesus' extreme advice, and I think it is advice rather than straightforward commandment, it's best avoided. Why? Do not judge. Why the warning do not judge? Well, it's because of a link that Jesus draws that we're not aware of and which changes everything. What link? Listen to him. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Do not judge or you too will be judged. The link which we're not aware of and which changes everything is between how you judge and how you're judged yourself. In other words, how you make moral assessments and how you are going to be morally assessed. In other words, Jesus is saying that you set the criteria in your treatment of others in how you'll be treated. I presume by God, that's not said, but I presume that's behind it. Verse 2 makes it quite explicit. In the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. It's a feedback loop. And it's very effective because what Jesus is doing is tying together two things we want to keep separate. Our concern to find fault in others and our concern to protect ourselves. <laughs> together. But, 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 but we say, but Robert, we have to exercise judgment. There are things wrong in the world. There are, there are people wrong in the world. There are people wrong on the internet. We can't just let things go willy-nilly without challenge. And you've got a point. Judgment is a judgment of faults. Faults are, after all, bad things. And moral assessment is surely sometimes unavoidable. The mention of the internet reminds us of the significant help social media has been in the passing judgment on others' business. Many years ago, non-believers would seize these words of Jesus and say, yes, yes, do not judge, on the grounds that all things uh, are, are relative, or something like that, right? But not today, oh no. We live in a world filled with judging in the name of every worthy cause, be it the struggle for justice, the protection for the vulnerable, the overthrowing of oppression, the preservation of free speech. There's an avalanche of assessment, condemnation, criticism and public shaming today. You can't ignore the judgmentalism and stridency in, con in contemporary progressive and conservative discourse. No doubt many of us find this deeply disturbing. I, for one, am very critical of people who go on like that. 
Now, this matter is deeper than you think, which is why Jesus' words are so challenging to us. Judging is engaging in what a recently published book calls moral talk. Moral talk. In this book, American philosophers, Justin Tozzi and Brandon Warmey, show that moral talk is valuable, essential even. But they also point out there's a problem with moral talk. Instead of using moral talk to do good, many people use moral talk to look good. That is, to gain recognition as morally impressive or even to dominate others, to gain power over others. So I express a moral judgment so that others will recognize me as a good person. I join the pylon, so I display my own goodness. Or I express moral condemnation to get power over someone, put them down. This use of moral talk to, gain, to look good, the authors call grandstanding. Grandstanding. In fact, it's the name of their book. Grandstanding, the use and abuse of moral talk. It's common. By the way, that's not just the author's opinions. The value of this book is it's based on empirical research, psychological and social studies. And while around it, they found two other things in their research. One is, there's empirical evidence that people typically think that they're morally better than others. I quote, studies show that we tend to rate our conduct as morally superior to the average person's. Just think about that for a moment, shall you? We think that we are more moral than the average person, right? Everyone thinks that. We tend, back to the quote, we tend to think that we are more likely than others to do good and less likely than others to do bad. And thirdly, they found there's evidence that people are not even aware that when they're grandstanding. They deceive themselves. People often think they're making moral judgments. People often think they're making moral judgments to do good rather than to look good, even when that's exactly what is going on and they don't realise it. I should add, by the way, that the truth of any moral assessment being made is irrelevant to whether people use it to look good. In fact, if it's true, even better for you. So there you have it. The evidence is in. People often use moral talk, judging, to promote themselves or dominate others. Two, people are biased to think of themselves as morally better than others. Three, people often be self-deceived what's going on. And that's no recent problem because that's what Jesus is addressing too. Now I'm convinced that when he says, do not judge or you'll be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, you'll be measured, he's not legally forbidding moral assessment. Nor is he merely picking out, as some of the, like, I regard as slightly less imaginative commentators say, a certain kind of judgmentalism and censoriousness. That's included, but that's, that's it. much wider than that. What he's using is imaginative and forceful language to destabilise the whole temptation to grandstanding, to using moral assessment selfishly. He's destabilising that whole enterprise. And he does so by turning our 
concern for ourselves against ourselves. And he, he does it at the very spot where we thought we were the strongest, our appeal to justice. Who doesn't want justice? That's why I'm objecting to you. Ah, uh -huh, says Jesus, for the way you judge others, you'll be judged, that's fair. The measure you give, the measure you'll get. Couldn't be more just than that, could it? Though in the Greek of the Gospel of Matthew, <coughs> the words are even more telling that verse two is, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you measure, you'll be measured. Not content with that, Jesus goes further. He invokes the spectre of gross social embarrassment. Imagine this, I quote verse three, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? It's grotesque, isn't it? Think about it. He goes on, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Actually, it's, it's more powerful than that. Literally, verse 4 says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when, look, there's a plank in your own eye? the Greek word for behold or look. Now, I want you to imagine this situation, right? Imagine yourself in this situation. Okay? Ah, your brother. A speck. Brother, let me take a speck out of your eye. Look! A plank in your own eye! How did you miss it? How embarrassing. Everyone else saw it. That'd be awful. Well, that'd just be like, my God, it'd be awful. That's, the, that's what Jesus asked you to imagine. That, that grotesque Situation, walk around, bang, the plank everywhere, can't see it, you know. Oh, look, a speck, right? It's extreme, it's grotesque. He's speaking to your imagination, but once you've heard it, you can't forget it, can you? You can't ever again assess someone without thinking, my God, what if that's possible for me? Jesus concludes with a, with a hint of sarcasm, just a hint. You hypocrite, he says, that is, you, you, you double-standard person. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly and get the speck out of your brothers. Now let's be clear, Jesus is not saying that before you judge somebody, make sure your faults aren't worse than theirs by a long way. Right? That would miss the whole point entirely. He's shocking us out of our usual ingrained, ingrained and common tendency to see our faults as small and other faults as huge. And he's done it by imagining for a moment the complete reverse. Imagine the complete reverse. And what that does is it undermines our certainty that our awareness of another's don't actually conceal a blindness to our own. These words work, by the way, even when you can't avoid actual situations which do demand some judging of others. They work when you have to judge, and you do. But even when you must make a moral assessment, the possibility of the unrecognised plank will give you pause. Once you've thought about it, once you've imagined it, you're never quite as self-righteous again. That's why I say that we should take Jesus' imaginative and forceful language seriously, very seriously, even literally, if you like, but not legally. Because every time you find yourself making a moral judgment, any kind of judgment, these words will cause you to take pause. What if that was me? What if that was me? Now, if that, on reflection, is powerful and clear, the next thing Jesus says is powerful, but surprisingly unclear. Let me read what he says, verse six. Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample you under their feet, 
and turn and tear you to pieces. That is, I mean, as far as it goes, the saying makes striking sense. I mean, if you give dogs what is sacred, they may turn and tear you to pieces. If you give, throw your pearls to pigs, they may well trample them underfoot. That's what he says. We can add, I guess we should know that in Jesus' culture, both pigs and dogs were unclean and disgusting animals. So that's part of it. But you can't help but feel that Jesus is doing something more than just warning us about two particularly dangerous animals. It's something like this. If you don't keep your wits about you, then you can destroy what is valuable or even find yourself in personal danger. There are some situations where you've got to make moral assessment, in other words. You've got to make it. In fact, if you don't, the judgment may be fatal. And yet Jesus leaves that parable hanging. He doesn't say, what I meant was, I know in our language we have the phrase pearls before swine as a simple throw of line, but that's nothing like the power of Jesus' image here. What he's done is, he's left it up to our wisdom, as he often does. Annoyingly, he doesn't lay out in detail how we're to live. He expects us to work it out for ourselves with the power of his words. So, if you go about life, put them together, think about that plank, at the same time, keeping in mind the dangerous pigs and dogs, okay? Do you think Jesus is trying to mess with your mind? <laughs> well, not really. They're both important at the one time. What he's asking you to do is live your life wholeheartedly oriented towards God, not yourself and your standing in your moral assessments and, and, and his goodness as he undermines our natural tendency, our deep-seated tendency to put ourselves against others. Finally, we come to verse 7 and following, which I think is a lovely section. Because here, the hearers are invited to, to, to seek God to meet their needs with confidence, based on invitation to relate to God, not as just an omnipot the omnipotent deity, but as a good and caring father. Although, as we'll see at the end, that there's still a reference about how we treat others in the tale. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Let me say again, this is that imaginative and forceful language we've heard already. See, right throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not merely telling people how to live. As it were, to lay down the law. It's, it's more powerful than that. He speaks in such a way, so poetically, imaginatively and forcefully, that he's enabling his readers to be changed through the power of his words. He's speaking for transformation, not merely information. And that's why here, his words are so extreme. There's none of the yes, but, that we, it's a probably rise in your mind, even as you think about what Jesus said. Everyone who asks, it can't be that simple. That's not the way to listen to Jesus. Don't approach his words like a lawyer looking for, at a contract, examining the fine print, looking for loopholes. 
looking for the exceptions. Rather, let your imagination be gripped by this picture of the sheer generosity of God, your Father in heaven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. And Jesus gives a reason for this confidence that in what follows. To be frank, it's a little underwhelming. I quote, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now that's setting a very low bar. Your Father in heaven is at least as good as a human father who manages not to give his son a poisonous reptile or gravel for breakfast. Really? Go any lower than that standard and you'll be calling in docs or whatever they're now called. You think, why does Jesus speak like this? Why? What's going on? Is he addressing something deep in the heart, the human heart, about God? Now, I don't think we'd ever say this or even allow ourselves to be conscious of it. But is it possible that deep down, sometimes we might actually think of God as worse than a fairly basic human father, a bare basic father? You ask for bread, he might actually give you a stone. For a fish, and you could get that snake from him. Now, as you all know, preachers preach sermons against their own sins. And I could say that, when I think about it, I do find, just sometimes, when I approach God for my needs or the needs of others, I find in my heart the sneaking suspicion that he won't act for my good. What's happening here is that Jesus is mocking our hidden low standards for God. He's exposing us to ourselves. He's saying, at least don't think of God as worse than you are. At least that. He's not worse than you are. You're evil, but even you know how to give good gifts to your children, right? God's at least better than a barely deadbeat dad. That, by the way, is my take on for Father's Day today. What this means is, although in life you often don't know what's going on in your life or what's happening to you, um, there are many troubles and issues, and we know it particularly this period, you can, know with, you, can, you can live with all that because you know with clarity our Father in heaven is better than, way, way better than a mere mediocre father who manages not to poison his children at, bed, at mealtime. This is a teaching which both laughs at us as it calls us to hopefulness and joy in life. Not because life's going well, but because your Father is in heaven. Let me say it again. Not because your life's going well or not going well, but because of your Father in heaven. Live your life wholeheartedly oriented towards God and his deep goodness. Which leads to the last thing, verse 12. So, in everything, do to others what you have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The so is to be taken seriously. The so follows on from the talking about God. How you treat others will flow from your vision of God's goodness and of what you think life is like. 
Is this a world in which it's kill or be killed? Do you think this, that being is a place where you mustn't give a sucker an even break? Is this a threatening and dangerous world in you must trust no one and look after yourselves? If you think so, then that will affect how you live your life oriented to others. Or is it a world in which if you then, who know you're evil, know how to give gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him so in everything? Do to others who'd have to do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Actually, literally in the Greek it is, for this is the law and the prophets. So in everything do, do, do to others as you have them do to you, this is the law and the prophets. It, it is, as Jesus says, the guts of the scriptures, at least regarding human relationships. There it is. The law and the prophets in one sentence. The sentence, of course, which breaks our natural tendency to think of ourselves different from others. As you wish them do to you, do to others. That's the law and the prophets. The reference to the law and the prophets reminds me of Jesus' big words right at the beginning in chapter 5, 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them as he is now in his teaching as well as in his life. This is called the golden rule, often praised, less often practiced. And it does echo where we began with Jesus' words not to judge others or you'll be judged because he's linking us and others. Yet this time it's positive, not negative. In everything, do to others as you had them do to you. And it flows out of a profound vision of life that is of God. As one scholar has written, the golden rule is not so much a rule as a vision. Maybe better called the golden vision. It beautifully summarises the way of being in the world that no amount of rules or regulations could ever encompass or hope to promote. So then, the plank, the dangerous animals, the slightly better than deadbeat dad. What are they all saying? Live your life wholeheartedly oriented towards God and his deep goodness in the way you treat others and yourself. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will, you will open our hearts and minds to the hidden depths of our disbelief and selfishness and that the words of, of, of your Son speaking to us will dwell in us and produce lives of Christian virtue and love. For Jesus' sake.